My name is Andrew Kays, and I'm the pastor at Emmanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church of Paynes Point. That's in rural Oregon, Illinois. You're about to hear me preach. Now, this episode was recorded during the COVID-19 pandemic, during which time public worship has been disrupted. We don't have it every Sunday. Therefore, all sermons have been recorded ahead of time to make them available online. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture is NRSV, used under the gratis policy of the copyright holder, the National Council of Churches. Our first reading comes from Ephesians, the first chapter. I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. And for this reason, I do not cease in giving thanks for you as I remember you in my prayers. I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation as you come to know him, so that the eyes of your heart enlightened, you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance among the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe according to the working of his great power. God put this power to work in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he has put all things under his feet and has made him the head over all things for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Here ends the reading. Our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Messiah is to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and see, I am sending upon you what my Father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Then he led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. While he was blessing them, he withdrew from them and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple blessing God. This is the gospel of our Lord. Grace and peace to you, sisters and brothers in Christ. Now, in a normal year, depending on where you worship, just about every week you would confess these words. And in fact, if you've been do, playing along at home during their church videos, you've said them too. He, Jesus, ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. That's how our translation of the Apostles' Creed phrases it. But the Apostles' Creed, you may well recall, is a summary of the Nicene Creed with a bit less on Jesus's nature and some details about technicalities about the Trinity. They narrowed it down to what every Christian really ought to know in the Apostles' Creed. But it starts with the Nicene Creed and the confession of the church in the fourth century. 
Now, nowadays we have a culture where we're inclined to live or let live, live and let live, or, you know, or simply let people kind of believe as they would. And we operate often like we're churches unto ourselves with a single member or perhaps the few in our social circle. And so it can be hard for us to imagine nowadays just how important that confession was when it came about. In the 4th century, Emperor Constantine of the Roman Empire, under his, after he converted, under his rule, Christianity became legal. And at that time, when it became legal, there was such a thing as mainstream Christianity, like what most Christians and their leadership would have believed in, in the empire. But there was also some drastic variations. And this is more drastic than just like how we have different denominations. You know? Our churches down the road from each other might have different emphases, different favorite theologians, different uh, emphasized books of scripture, different cultural markers, right? We're talking more like fundamental disagreements about who Jesus is, even who God is. By today's reckoning, this variation within the empire was more like the difference between ecumenical Christianity, those that confess these creeds, that agree with these councils, that's everything from Catholic to Orthodox to us and many more, the difference between us and, say, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Muslims, the religious traditions of those, of those folks. Now, all of these religious traditions that I've now mentioned lay some claim on Jesus and worship the God of Abraham, but we take drastically different stances, drastically different perspectives on both. Well, Constantine's mother was a member of one of the larger alternatives, the Arians, named after Arius, not that word that used to be used for uh, Indo-Europeans before somebody radically misused it. They proclaimed, the Arians, that Jesus was not an eternal person of the Trinity, but rather a creation after the fact. Now, Constantine wanted them to see if they couldn't come to some agreement, some middle ground, and at the same time give a legal definition for Christianity. And that makes perfect sense just knowing what you know already. After all, if it's going to be a legal religion, it needed to be defined. Despite the fact that then the political pressure on the council would be to play nice with Arianism, it would have been toward that stance, the council instead, a gathering of bishops from across the empire, decided against the teachings of Arius. The result was that creed, what Christians, ecumenical Christians, believe. Why all that preamble? I mean, it's important history, of course, especially when it comes to things like interreligious dialogue. And I'm not saying we need to insist everyone who does not affirm this creed is by definition not Christian or anything like that. But rather, when we say ecumenical Christian, that's the term I prefer, as in the Christians who, again, affirm the ecumenical councils, including Nicaea, we have a well-defined set of traditions in mind and theology. And in these traditions, which again very much include our own, we can point now to the words of the creeds and get a quick list of what is essential, distinct, what it is we believe, and that anyone out there ought to be able to safely assume everyone in here believes. Most of it is familiar. Most of its ideas we talk about quite a bit. God created the world. Jesus was born of a virgin. He was crucified. He rose again. And then he ascended. That even makes it into the summary, into the Apostles' Creed. And I've said this in years past, and I don't think much has changed. We tend to gloss right past that. 
even though it was that important to get into the creed and even into the summary, it doesn't come up all that often outside of when we say it in the creed. But it's that important. As the Easter season in our church year wraps up, we've got two important dates here. The 50th Sunday of Easter, after Easter, is Pentecost. But before we get there, there's the 40th day, Ascension. But we're saying Ascension Sunday because we have the option to round up that 40 days to the next Sunday. That's where we are now. Believe it or not, that refresher on church history has already brought in our texts for today. Eh, Maybe not as directly as we'd like, but these readings were among the sources for the creed. I mean, you could hear some of the same words right there, right? Now, of course, Scripture as a whole is the source of the creeds, but specifically when we get those aforementioned lines about the ascension, we want to give those a look. We've actually been teasing this idea for a few weeks. It's been in the subtext for the Easter season. We've had the Gospel of John and then First John commenting on it. And for John, the ascension is climactic. It affects what Jesus is up to. The end goal of the Gospel is a mutual indwelling, an abiding of God and God's people by way of Jesus. It's in the ascension, having experienced life and death and the fullness of human nature, that Jesus returns to God the Father in full mutual indwelling and makes it possible for us, with our human nature, to abide with God in this life and the next in an all-new way. We've also heard from Acts over these past few weeks in which, well, Acts is the second volume written by Luke. And for Luke, it's the Ascension plus Pentecost that together are the turning point between Jesus's ministry and the ministry of the church. Jesus goes up, the Spirit comes down, and we're on to the next phase in God's plan for salvation in the world, the next chapter in the story God is telling through creation. Today we had Ephesians, which ties Jesus' ascension to the apocalypse, a revelation about how this age, this world, will come to an end. Right there, three perspectives, and they're all wrapped up in just those few quick lines we say every week. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Now, I'm not going to claim the world could not have been any other way, but this is the way it was. It's the way it is. So let's consider what it means, what the ascension means for us. Well, it explains how Jesus is still alive, even though he's not walking around before our eyes, turning water to wine and things like that, as he once was. Jesus's ascension is a mirror of the incarnation. As the Christmas miracle introduces the word of God made flesh, the ascension insists that that word made flesh returned as flesh to God the Father. It's bookends. It begins and ends the story. It frames it. And that movement, again, sometimes called the happy exchange, opens up salvation for all of humanity in an all-new way. Everyone with a human nature, because human nature and divine nature have now touched. Touched in a way they never have since and never had before. Lastly, the ascension, when paired with Pentecost, leaves us in suspense. While the Holy Spirit prompts us to do God's work, to bring about the kingdom and live our lives in a way that honors the gospel, as we've seen time and again these past few weeks. But in the back of our minds, every time we confess it or reflect on it, we are aware that the same way Christ left this world, he shall return to it. Our eyes are always, to some degree, on the horizon. The prophesied Son of God and Son of Man who would come to save and judge the world is the very same whom we proclaim is the Christ. 
in the same way it mirrored and therefore bookended the Christ event, the ascension now bookends the age we live in. It started this chapter. It began the time, uh, this post-resurrection, the post-ascension world that we live in in anticipation of Christ's return. So, what do we do with all this information? As I've put it this season, what does it mean to be Christian? Well, we've really leaned into the historical and theological this morning, and let's just call it a a set of ideas or beliefs that ecumenical Christians largely agree on. In this culture of ours today, in which each person could possibly have their own beliefs or be a church unto themselves, it's important that we know and talk about what our tradition teaches, what our creeds proclaim. What does it mean to say, I am a, for example, Lutheran? We don't all have to have Pannenberg, you know, big complicated theological statements, volumes even at the ready but we should have some idea. And that's helpful for our own proclaiming. Right? Like when we testify to others what we have seen and heard and believe, it's good to have that in our toolkit. When they say, well, what is it you believe exactly? What does your church teach? And it's good for us as individuals for, and as a community, for our, ourselves. We can't let these words become rote just because we say them every week. They're incredibly important. They've got historical, theological value that can hardly be overstated. We can't say them every week and let them just become noise. Like we don't even know what it was we quite said. So, one last time. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's the era we're in. Driven by the Holy Spirit, we carry on with Jesus' ministry because Jesus is very much still alive, very much the king, and has, is, and will usher in the end of this age just as he ushered in its beginning. It's important that it happened that way, and we're living into it. Amen. Thanks for listening. I pray God spoke to you in some way. A quick note at the end here, which you can skip if you've heard it before. The audio of my sermons does not always include proper citations. While I do some self-study and lean on my seminary education, I also lean on my colleagues with whom we have a regular text study. I also use Luther Seminary's Working Preacher website and their podcast, Sermon Brainwave. Some credit is due to at least one of those sources. Wherever you are, whenever you hear this, please be well. Take care of yourself and each other, and have a great rest of the week.